think about uh, him knowing us and yet loving us is just amazing. Open your Bibles tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. As I announced this morning, we're going to we're going to start on a series and go all the way through this chapter. It's really not that long, but uh, probably tonight uh, we'll cover as much territory as we will any other time. And we're just going to look at the first three verses. We're right to ask tonight, what do we need most? I suppose we would get a lot of different answers. Take a survey among the pastors and ask them, well, what does your church need the most? And somebody would probably say, we need money. We, we need a big offering. We... Uh, you know, we we can't pay our bills or can't do this or can't do that. And sometimes money becomes a major problem in the Lord's work. Somebody else might say, well, what we really need is uh, we need workers. We've got, you know, not a lot of money, but we've got enough money that we can make it. But we need workers. We just don't have enough workers to, you know, to get involved. Somebody else might say, well, you know, what we really need is just we need more faith or we need more wisdom or uh, or patience, maybe. Uh, but, but I don't think anybody could argue with the fact if, if, if I said what we really need more than anything in our churches is love. I mean, that is the basic element in our relationship with God and man. And he tells us that in Matthew chapter 22 where he talks about the first and the great commandment, of course, is love God. The second commandment is like unto the first, you know, that we love one another. And so that is the basic element. It's also the main characteristic of a Christian. In John chapter 13, he said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples and that ye love one another. So that's the main characteristic of a disciple. It's a motivator for service. We can talk a lot about that. We also can talk about the fact that it's the means whereby our witness is made effective. People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And without love, we can get up, you know, and be ever so truthful in our, in our teaching, and yet it's not going to find lodging in the hearts of people uh, unless they're convinced that we really do have a genuine love for them. I might add that it is the might that keeps us going. That is the power, the energy that keeps us going. When, I, when, it, when everything else is going wrong and you feel like throwing in the towel and the whole world is against you, having that love in your heart for God and a love for other people, that will keep you going when nothing else will. Uh, but there's a lot of confusion about, you know, what love is. We can all say, well, what we really need is love, but what in the world do we, you know, what, what do we mean by that? Well, here in 1 Corinthians, uh, he, he tells us, because this is the greatest, the most complete, the most accurate description of love that we find anywhere in the world. Verse number 1 says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not charity, I am become as sounding brass and a tinkling cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. 
And though I bestow all of my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. The first thing I want to do tonight is to nail down the meaning of love. And and in order to understand what love is, we've got to listen to God rather than man. Because even the dictionary really doesn't, you know, do us a, a lot of good. You look up the word love in the English dictionary and you find a long list of words trying to describe it. But then when you come down to the end of the description, it says this, quote, as in tennis, no points scored. So when you go to the dictionary, love can mean anything or nothing. So, you know, it just doesn't give you a really good idea of what genuine love is. And we misuse that word a lot today. We use it in reference to everything from a mushy sentimentalism, you know, to illicit sex. And uh, how many times, you know, some some boys told a girl, I, you know, I love you. And what he really means is I want you. I just want to use you for my pleasure. Uh, But our text doesn't have anything to do with those things, and it doesn't have anything to do with what we would call tender affection, you know, such as we might have toward a friend or even a family member. Notice the word charity here in this chapter. The word charity comes from the Greek word agape, and it's the same word that is translated love over and over and over again. Uh, but this is, you know, there, there are several different Greek words translated into the English word love, but this particular word for love here speaks about the love that comes from God, and it's the love that is like God. It's the same word that's used in John 3.16, and if you go all the way through John, for example, where it talks about the love of God, the fact that God so loved the world, it is exactly the same same word, the Greek word agape, and here it's translated into the word charity. Now, that's for a good reason, because love is to be active, and that's the point. And that's why the translators of the King James Version of the Bible used this particular word, because in the, the English readers could identify with that, so they would, you know, not misunderstand what was meant by the word love. And so this is descriptive of what love is all about. It's charity, it's love in action, and so that's the point. Agape speaks about a self-sacrificing love. You know, to, to really, I think, just get a good handle on exactly what it is like, uh, we can look at the Lord's command in Matthew 5, 44, and he says, love your enemies. Now, now notice what he says after that. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, if we learn anything from this, we see that love is a choice that we make. Uh, it's, it's a choice that we make to seek the highest good of the other person. It is a choice that we make that we are willing to sacrifice for the sake of the other person, even when they don't deserve it. 
Notice again what the Lord said. He's talking about enemies, those that curse you, those that hate you, those that despitefully use you. By the way, that's the way God loves us. He knew us, and yet He loved us. He sees us for what we really are, and He loves us. Well, you know, we Christians, we have a way of dancing around the subject. We know that love ought to be in our vocabulary. We know that we ought to be able to say, you know, to our brothers and sisters in Christ that, well, but I I love you. And uh, and, and in reality, we know deep down that our love is lacking, kind of like Clarence Darrow boasted many years ago. He said, I never killed a man, but he said, I read a lot of obituaries with great pleasure. I think sometimes that's kind of the way that our mind works, you know. I, I'm not going to say that I hate the guy, but, but you know, like the old saying, you know, to live up above with the saints that we love, oh, that'll be glory, but to dwell here below with the saints we know, well, wow, that's another story. And sometimes that's what's going on. And keep in mind, that, and we're, I'll talk more about this later in the message, but Paul is writing to a troubled church. And, and the purpose of it is to correct several problems. And so this is why he's addressing the subject of love, because it is the very thing that gets to the heart of the matter. In order to correct those problems, there has to be an attitude of love. They must choose to love one another. And again, I want to emphasize, this is a choice that we make. And and naturally, we can't do it without God's help, but God doesn't force us to love others. We we make that choice. If somebody says, well, you know, I I don't love so-and-so anymore. Well, you need to learn how then, because it's a choice that you make. It's not a feeling that you have. So this is the meaning of love. It is that God kind of love. Even knowing you and, and, and understanding how sinful you are, God loves you anyway. And God says, that's the way I want you to interact with other people. I want you to do the same with them as I've done with you. Now, here tonight, we're talking about the preeminence of love. And in these first three verses... We, uh, we see the majesty of love. Because if you look back to chapter number 12, he closes there by telling them, he says that he's going to show them a more excellent way. And, and that's what we're seeing here, a more excellent way. And, and he divides his thoughts up here in these next two verses in, in two different groups, next three verses, I should say. They're, they're spiritual gifts, so he wants us to see the majesty of love in that they are greater than spiritual gifts. Now, let's notice some of the spiritual gifts that he mentions here. First of all, verse number one, he's talking about tongues. That was the ability to speak in another language that's not naturally acquired. It's not what some denominations would make you think that it is to where it's just some kind of gibberish that nobody understands. If it's the true tongues of the Bible, it is a language, but it's a language not naturally acquired by the person that is speaking it. 
And by the way, it is only one of the nine spiritual gifts that he mentions in chapter number 12. There are nine different spiritual gifts that were given and used by the Lord's people up until the completion of the Bible. And we're not going to talk about all of those different nine gifts, but tongues happen to be one of those gifts. This was a part of the problem in the church at Corinth. Uh, tongues is a showy gift. I mean, that you know, that, that that's something that really attracts a lot of attention. And, and a part of the problem at Corinth was some of the people were not satisfied with the gifts that they had. They wanted to be able to speak in other languages, you know, like, like some of the people could do. And uh, so, uh, consequently, now you've got you've got jealousy raging between the members. I, you know, I want to be able to do what he does. And as I said this morning, we're not in competition with one another. It doesn't make any difference how God chooses to use someone else. We need to do what we should do and what we could do, not what somebody else is doing. So he tells us here that charity is even greater than being able to speak in other languages, which is pretty impressive, by the way. Verse number 2, notice he mentions prophecy. And of all of the spiritual gifts, of those nine spiritual gifts that were mentioned, uh, prophecy was the greatest of those gifts. This has to do with speaking under divine inspiration. In other words, the prophet received a divine, direct revelation from God. Think about that, because the prophet did not need to study as I do. I, I'm dumber than you think I am. I, I well, maybe not, but uh, <laughs> I'm dumber than I try to pretend anyway. But but I've got to study. Brother Kenneth has to study. That's just the way it is. God doesn't just you know. I, I know down in the deep south, you know, they they where they're against education. They 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 literally teach this. By the way, that boy, if God has uh, has called you to preach and you got the anointing upon you, all you've got to do is just get up there and let God fill your mouth. <laughs> I've heard some of those sermons, and by the way, it's convinced me that there's more to it than that. It takes study on our part. But for the prophets, they didn't need to study like we do. Now, that's not to say they didn't need to study other things. I'm talking about the messages that they delivered. They would just stand up and deliver a message that God had given to them. And it was of extreme importance, by the way, because remember, God is communicating truth to His people by giving people the gift of prophecy. And so this is not just about, some people think about prophecy just in the sense of, you know, telling what the future is going to be, foretelling what it's going to be. But it's more than that. It's speaking under divine inspiration, things you've received by direct revelation. Then notice in verse number two, he speaks about knowledge, that love is greater than knowledge. And Remember, this has to do with the gift of knowledge. It's mentioned in chapter 11 and verse number 8. So this is one of the spiritual gifts that's mentioned there. Uh, whenever we think about knowledge as a spiritual gift, understand this is doesn't have anything to do with knowledge in general. This has to do with the gift of God whereby 
God gives a, a, a divine awareness of revealed truth. I, I think about in Acts chapter 5 where Ananias and Sapphira had lied under the Holy Spirit saying they would do one thing and they did another. And God revealed that to Peter. Peter had the gift of knowledge. God told him what they had done. I don't have that gift. I, no, no preachers nowadays have that gift. That's not to say we don't have knowledge. We have acquired knowledge, things that we have learned, but God doesn't just give us a divine revelation about, you know, what the members of the church are doing. Boy, am I ever glad. I've got to tell you what, I, I, I mean, you know, you, you hear, and, and this is true not only of pastors, it's true of all of us as members. We hear enough bad stuff about people, you know, without trying. But imagine if God, you know, just taps you on the shoulder and said, Oh, by the way, I thought you might want to know, uh, uh, so-and-so was down at the bar again the other night. Or so-and-so got in a fight down at the, down at the ball game. Yeah, somebody, you know, grabbed a, foul ball and they got into it and and I don't want to know about that stuff but it was of extreme importance during the infancy of the church and before the completion of the Bible and so God gave that gift to certain people as he did to Peter there in Acts chapter number five now verse number two he mentions another spiritual gift and this is the gift of faith now we all have faith in, in, in a manner. All of us have faith in something. And we can increase our faith by simply studying the Word of God. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. But this is talking about a different kind of faith. This is the gift of faith. This is the kind of faith that enabled people to do miraculous things. And notice what he refers to here, a faith that is able to move mountains. Is that impressive or not? Wow, to move mountains. Uh, you could really attract a crowd with that, couldn't you? So, you know, we're going to hold services over here at the, uh, what, what do they call the dump over there? That's the nearest thing we got to a mountain down here in Texas, you know. Uh, but... We're going to hold services over there at the foot of the mountain, and uh, y'all need to come and, and watch our terrific pastor as he moves a mountain. Boy, that'd be people show up, might even get the newspaper out there. You know, they'd want to write an article about that maybe, and uh, that, that would attract a lot of attention. And by the way, there's a lot of preachers that would use that for that purpose. But notice what he says. He says, love is better than having the kind of faith that can move mountains. Here's the point. The bottom line of this is that that great ability does not ever give us the right to be unloving. That's what he's trying to get across to them. Even if you could speak in other languages, not naturally acquired, even if you have the gift of prophecy and the gift of knowledge and the gift of faith and you could move, move mountains, he says, none of that means anything unless you love one another. And the problem is that a lot, a lot of times gifted people have the feeling, you know, that they, uh, that they're more worthy than other people are. And this is what was going on there in the church. And 
it's possible, and by the way, when you look back to chapter 7, or chapter 1, verse 7, there's a very interesting phrase there where he tells them that they, they possessed all of the spiritual gifts. Now think about this. That church, they had people in that church that had all of these gifts. You talk about an impressive congregation. I mean, at least there was the possibility for it. And yet, in spite of having all of those gifts, the church was not being controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, that tells us, folks, that, you know, if we, listen, if we are ever so orthodox in our faith, that is, we believe all of the right things doctrinally. We have our I's dotted and our T's crossed and we've got it nailed down. We can go out here and enter in debates with other congregations and win debates. I mean, we're ever so knowledgeable. And let's suppose that we had these gifts that he just mentioned here and he wants us to know even if you've got all of that without love, all of that is meaningless. And, 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 you know, if, listen, if we expect to please God, if we expect to be rewarded by God, the only thing that makes our service to God acceptable is love. It doesn't make any difference how well, you know, I preach or how well somebody sings. It doesn't make any difference how hard you work, how much money you give, regardless of what you do. You know, we can, we can applaud and people can get excited and it can win the praise of other people. But if we don't do it out of a heart of love, there is no reward in it for us. I love Hebrews chapter 6 and verse number 10. And, and I've mentioned it before on several occasions as a reason that it meant so much to me. But, because of the way in which it was brought to my attention for the first time many years ago. But he says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor. But notice this phrase, your work and your labor. God's not unrighteous. He's not going to forget that. Your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And that's what we're talking about when it comes to love. It is something that is active. It's not something that just feels good. It's not something, you know, that we talk about, but it is active in that is reaching out, striving to meet the deepest needs of the other person. And God always rewards that kind of work. So whatever we're going to do for the Lord, we have to do it out of a spirit of love. So love then is better, it's greater than spiritual gifts. We see its majesty in that it's greater than all of these spiritual gifts. But notice he goes on in verse 3 and talks about the fact that it's better even than sacrifice. And he mentions two things. It's better than the sacrifice of things. Look at the first part of chapter or verse 3 again. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor. Now, wouldn't that be something? I mean to absolutely give away and sell and use everything you've got to feed the poor. That would be absolutely amazing. And he's talking about people that are doing good deeds for the sake of others. He's talking about benevolence. 
And surely, you know, nobody would question a person's love for humanity when they would do something like that, right? I mean, my, we'd look at that and maybe it even made the headlines of the newspaper. You know, sometimes we hear about somebody giving a million or two million or ten million to some university and so forth, and boy, that gets a lot of publicity. But to think about somebody giving absolutely everything they had in order to feed the poor, and somebody says, well, you know, isn't that love well not necessarily not necessarily because a lot of times we do the right thing but we do it for the wrong reasons and 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 sometimes sacrifices are not acts of love Uh, it 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 might be an expression of, of pride it might be an act of selfishness it could be for the sake of trying to pacify a guilty conscience you know, that I failed in so many other ways. And, you know, and, and since, since I've got an excess of money or time or talent or whatever, I'll do these things for the sake of helping somebody else because it'll make me feel better about myself. It might be to gain the attention and the praise of other people. Uh, it might be to, you know, just fulfill some deep personal desire that we have. That, you know, I just want to, I want to be Mother Teresa, you know. I, I, I want to help people. But uh, we can do all of those things, and yet, even when they might profit from it, we won't. There's no reward for us, even though we sacrifice things. Now, wait a minute. He's going to go down even deeper now. He says, you know, we could sacrifice all of those things for the sake of the poor, and it won't benefit us anything. But now notice he speaks about life itself in the last part of verse 3. And though I give my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. So love is better than even the sacrifice of our life. Now, this is the ultimate act of sacrifice, the giving of one's life. And by the way, that's something that many dear saints have done down through the centuries. They have died as a result of their love for God and their love for others. But Paul is saying that even giving your life for a cause is, is absolutely of no value if it's not done in love. It's kind of like Paul is straining here, trying to use the strongest possible language that he can to emphasize how important love is to God. And and boy, he just really hits the nail on the head when he says, you know, without it, we are nothing. We are a a zero uh, because we don't profit anything from it. And uh, think about it, you know, without love, life is a zero how would you like to have that on your tombstone he lived and died and it's a zero struck out absolutely no profit from all that that he did so this is the majesty of love now i want you to see the the medicine of love and it's not stated here but it's clearly implied And I said earlier that Paul was writing to a troubled church, and I said we'll comment on that later. Well, this is the later now. He's writing to a church 
that is so troubled that all of its ills can be cured only by the medicine of love. You know, usually when we think about this chapter, and we refer to it as one of the most beautiful chapters in all of the Bible. People have said that. It is a chapter that people are familiar with. It's a chapter that's sometimes used at weddings and anniversary celebrations, and people will make reference to this chapter, and that's well and good. By the way, there are at least parts of this chapter that have even been set to music. And so they sing about what is written here. But please understand, and don't miss this, that was never the original intent of this chapter. Instead, Paul is writing to a dysfunctional church, and he's trying to get them back on the right track because they have been abusing their spirit. Look at this and keep this in the context, and that's why I use the word medicine, the medicine of love. Paul knows this is the only thing that's going to cure their ills. And a lot of times, you know, we, we, we become so familiar with a particular passage of Scripture that we just totally ignore the true meaning by not considering the context. And, and so you've always got to look at the verses before and the verses after and consider the context if you want to understand what's being said. Listen, if you don't do that, you can make the Bible say almost anything that you can imagine. But when you, when you interpret it in the light of the context, it makes all the difference in the world. So he's trying to get them to understand that if you're going to solve the problems that you're going through, it's going to demand love on your part. That's the only thing that will enable you to overcome your divisions and your difficulties. Remember, they are divided. Some said, well, I'm of Paul, and some said, well, I'm of Cephas, and, you know, some said, well, I just follow the Lord. Like I've often said, that's probably the worst bunch of all of them, you know, just uh, they're not going to listen to any human authority. They're not going to operate under the authority of the pastors or anything. Yeah, I'm just going to follow the Lord. So here's a church that's divided, and yet, and yet, a church that possessed all of the spiritual gifts but they lack love one for another. Carl Menninger said, Love is the medicine for the sickness of the world. Love cures. It cures those who give it, and it cures those who receive it. You know, if we, we oftentimes use the word ministry. And by that, we generally think about preaching. We think about teaching a, a Sunday school class or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, ministry can can be demonstrated in a lot of different ways. But the only way that it can be really effective and the only way that it can bring us any kind of a reward is whenever we do what we do in a spirit of love. Many years ago, I jotted down in the flyleaf of my Bible something somebody had written. It says, love is the backbone of truth the lever of grace, the heart of the gospel, the summary of Christianity, the motor of true service, the meaning of the cross, and the nature of God. That's well said. That helps us to understand what love is. And when we go through this chapter, by the way, you'll notice that this is not a definition. The Bible doesn't give a definition of love, but rather it gives us a description 
of love. And we're going to be looking at the things that love does and the things that love doesn't do. But please understand that it is just as true of us as it was with the church at Corinth. Regardless of what talents and abilities and gifts that we might have, it's all worthless if we don't love one another. This, this is something that is absolutely so serious that we dare not misunderstand its importance. In 1 John chapter number 3, for example, and so many times we just assume because somebody's a church member that, you know, they're also a part of God's family, that they've been saved, and that, you know, that may or may not be the case. But I want you to notice here in John chapter, 1 John 3, verse 14, we know, now this is the blessed assurance that we sing about. We know, there's no doubt about it, it is a settled fact in our heart. We know that we have passed from death unto life. Isn't that wonderful? We know that we have eternal life. We have spiritual life. We know that. Well, how do we know it? Well, somebody said, well, boy, I've got, I, got, I got this feeling, you know. I saw, I saw a lightning bolt. I heard a clap of thunder. I had this experience. I remember many years ago somebody trying to relay something like that to my pastor and this experience that they had had, and I, they talked about a lightning bolt or something like that and said it just hit them right in the head. And old Brother Hankins looked at him and said, you know, he said, I don't believe you. And he said, well, you don't believe me? He said, no. He said, if you'd told me it hit you in the heart, I might believe what you said, but you said it hit you in the head. I don't believe a word. He said, salvation has to do with your heart, not with your head. You know, and I think that was a pretty good analysis of, of, of the situation there. Salvation is something that is not based on some kind of a, a emotional experience that we have. It is not even embracing the truths of the Bible. The devil believes and yet he trembles. But John says we know that we know what? Well, we know that we've passed from death unto life. Well, how do we know, John? Well, notice, because we love the brethren. And boy, I want you to notice how bold he gets now. He says, he that loveth not his brother abideth in death. He, he doesn't say that he is in danger of losing his salvation. He, does, he doesn't say that he might die you know, someday, he says, he abideth in death. That is his present state. Amen. He's never been saved. He's not a child of God. So none of us can rightfully claim to be a child of God if we don't love one another. And boy, the evidences of love, I'm telling you what, when you read through the Bible, and right here, for example, in First John, this little letter, you read through that, and you see all of the evidences of real, true, genuine love one for another. Because, you know, I stand up here and say, well, I love every member of this church. You know, that's one thing to say that. It's another thing to really give evidence of that. And a lot of times we talk about loving one another when we don't really give any evidence of having love for one another. Look in the next chapter, chapter number 4, verse 20. If a man say, I love God, and a lot of people do, you can find people everywhere that will make that statement, oh yeah, I love God. 
But notice, he loves God and hateth his brother. He is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. Folks, listen, this is an obligation we have. It's not an option. Maybe somebody's thinking, well, yeah, you know, but I'm a Christian. I've been a Christian for years. I, I just really haven't learned, you know, to, to love people. You know, when the Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell in your heart, He brings with Him the love of God. He enables us to love one another. Now, none of us do it perfectly. I understand that. And we do learn to love as we go along. In fact, the Bible tells you the older women that they're to teach the younger women to love their husbands so we can increase in our love for one another. But whenever that love is absolutely missing in our life, folks, there's only one conclusion we can draw from that, and that's that we've not really truly been born again. That's the evidence of it. And we don't want to miss the seriousness of this. And I realize that Paul is writing to a church. He's writing to professing Christians. He's writing about giving them the solution to their divisions and their difficulties. But but let's not kid ourselves. Let's not suppose that every member of that church was truly born again. I don't think that I don't think you could say that about any church. Every member, you know, is truly a child of God. So if we're, go- listen, if we're going to operate according to the commands of the Bible, if we're going to fulfill our obligations, if we're going to please Christ, if we're going to win a reward that will last for all of eternity, we absolutely must love one another. And, and you know, it, it just kind of goes without saying, well, boy, you know, if we're Christians, we... You know, we, we love one another, but the greatest threat that we have as a church is not loving one another like we should. Boy, Satan is an expert at nitpicking, isn't he? You know, he's constantly bringing to our attention the faults and the failures of other people, and he'll try to take some little old petty thing and blow it all out of proportion And don't you kid yourself, I mean right now, and I think we can say this any day of the year in any church in the country, at this very moment there are some folks in the church that are going through difficult times because of the fact that their love for others is lacking. It might be that someone has genuinely offended them. I mean really, what the person did was really truly wrong. And they've been offended. They're hurt by it. And their response to that is what? Their response is, well, I'm, I'm going to quit going to church. Or, I, you know, I'm, I'm going to pitch a fit or whatever. And try to shift all the blame on the individual that did the wrong. Can you imagine someone trying to offend the Apostle Paul? How do you offend a guy that says, I'm the chief of sinners? I'm as bad as they get. And, and that's what he believed about himself. That's what he said. 
You, you couldn't offend somebody like that. You see, the Bible says only by pride comes contention. Whether it's in the home, whether it's in the church, the only reason we ever have contention is because of pride. And, and, and the problem is that, you know, when we think about being offended in the church, somebody does something that is absolutely wrong. Let's go back to whenever you first learned about Christ and trusted Christ as your Savior. And I've often said the most impressive thing in all of the world to me, when I first heard the gospel, it was not anything to do with God's wisdom and God's power. I was impressed with the stars. You know, I, I wasn't a believer, but I, I did believe there must be some kind of a God. I, I, you know, I was dumb, but I wasn't so dumb that I thought all of that just happened without a God. That's impressive stuff whenever you look up there and think about all God's done, right? But that, that's not what impressed me. And it did not impress me so much that I thought, you know, if I don't change, I'm going to die and go to hell. I didn't want to do that. But I'm telling you, that wasn't the deciding factor. The deciding factor for me is the same it was for everyone else, and that is the goodness of God leads you to repentance. That's what the Bible says. Amen. The goodness of God leads you to repentance. And whenever I heard Romans 5, 8, but God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, exactly what Kathy was singing about earlier, he knew me. He knew me. While I was yet a sinner, that God loved me? How, how can that be? Well, that, listen, that just absolutely knocked me off of my feet to think about God loving me that way. Let me tell you something. That's exactly how I'm supposed to love you and you're supposed to love me, faults and all. Because remember, it's a choice that we make, folks. We make a choice whether we're going to love each other or not. And I'm going to tell you, if we don't have love one for another, we are headed for a world of hurt. And the only way we can survive and thrive as a church is if we have that deep-seated love in our heart that says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a peacemaker come hell or high water. I don't care what anybody else does, they can, whatever they say about me, whatever they do to me, I'm not going to let them get the advantage over me. I'm not going to respond out of hatred and bitterness. I'm going to love them because, listen, if you're ever going to be able to help them, you're going to have to love them. And that goes back kind of where we're, we started there, where the Lord was talking about love your enemies, right? Bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That's our obligation. And the only way that we can possibly do that is what? You know, well, you say, well, boy, if they would change their lifestyle, I'd start loving them. No, you're obligated to love them regardless of what their lifestyle is. And the only way you can love people like that, the only way you can love the unlovely is for you to be so overwhelmed with God's love for you that it's, it just dawns upon you. How can I not love them when God loved me so much? Love one another for love is of God 
And here tonight we see the preeminence of love. It's greater than any of the spiritual gifts. It's greater than any sacrifice that we could make, any gift that we could give. Love stands head and shoulders above absolutely everything else. I mean, to fail here is to fail altogether. And my prayer is that we not fail. Let's stand, please. Father, how we thank you for loving us unconditionally and for giving evidence of that love and the gift of your Son. How thankful we are that we can enjoy all of the blessings of his atonement, even though we're so very unworthy. And how we thank you, Lord, for those that have manifested that kind of love toward us. They've loved us even though we don't deserve it. And I pray tonight that we as a church might determine in our hearts that we're going to demonstrate that kind of love one for another. Help us to understand that is the means whereby that we are protected as a church. It is the strength, it's the motivation that we need to keep us going when the road gets rough and whenever we get weary. Lord, help us to love you and help us to love others to such an extent that we never for a moment entertain the thought of giving up, that we never entertain the thought of trying to get even and get back and hurt somebody that has hurt us. God, fill us with your spirit and enable us to truly love one another. For we beg it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together while we sing a verse of invitation. 373. I can hear my name. In Him I say Pray for those that we've already mentioned, and of course for all of the crew that's uh, went on uh, went on their vacation and they're in Aruba. Pray for their safety while they're gone, Brother Kenneth. Uh, Brother Jerry McCray is at Regent Care Center in Kingwood, room three fifteen. He invites anyone who would like to come visit him to to come say hello and see how he's doing. Amen. And, and Brother, Brother Kenneth is. He and I were talking a while ago about the fact that that he is just lit up like a Christmas tree being able to to watch these services every week. And I, I'll tell you what, that is such a blessing to know that, you know, our guys back there have made it possible to be able to broadcast this week after week. You know, we don't think much about it. But we, we've got folks that are sick and maybe traveling or whatever, and they're not able to be here. 
And so we're, we're grateful to, you know, to have that kind of ministry that's able to reach out uh, to them. And we get reports of people, you know, in other states and, and, and what have you saying, hey, we've been watching the broadcast. And uh, so thank you, gentlemen, for what you do back there in the sound booth and the, the, that, that ministry. Anybody else? Uh, yes, Don? This afternoon, uh, a lady passed away. Her family was some of the charter members at Lakeland. It's the Patricia English family. Y'all would pray for them. All right, Patricia. English family, all right. All right. Anything else we miss? Any announcements, Don? Terry's having a, a vein surgery tomorrow. Nothing serious, we hope, but just remember him, please. All right, we'll do. <coughs> Absolutely will. Last call. All minds clear. Mark Anderson, would you word our prayers, sir?